Welcome to the inaugural Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Today, we are defending our year. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori, Christian Lewis. And today, we are defending the top five albums from the year we were born. In this case, 1968, 1976, 1988. So you get the picture. You can learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook for more info. Now let's get to the show. inaugural brother 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 podcast my name is Wyndham Lewis I'm your host and today I'm here with my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis and we are three brothers from three different marriages living in three different cities with and three different generations uh, with one shared passion and that's music so we're going to talk about music and and the best way we figured to illustrate our uh, rather non-traditional family is by defending our year and in this case I was born in 1968, Jeremy was born in 1976, and Christian was born in 1988, um, which explains uh, some of the um, contrasts in our and the way we've received music over the years and what we've listened to and what we've experienced. So um, we're going to start off by doing uh, this Defending Our Year, which is uh, we picked the top five albums from the year we were born, and we're going to argue why our year was the best. Uh, I'm going to kick it off with 1968 and my number five album, which uh, uh, was a bit of a tough, tough one getting to number five. The top four in my year are, are very straightforward, but number five, it was between several albums, uh, Bookends by Simon and Garfunkel, Music from Big Pink by the band, uh, White, White Light, White Heat by Velvet Underground. But what I uh, settled on was at number five is At Folsom Prison by Johnny Cash, which is an absolute classic, uh, Johnny um, early in, in 1968, uh, went into Folsom. Uh, he had written a song called Folsom Prison Blues before, which was very popular with inmates apparently around the country, and as a result, decided to play a series of uh, concerts in penitentiaries. Did one in, in uh, Huntsville, Alabama as a warm-up, and then did um, a couple of concerts that they recorded for live albums, one at Folsom and one at San Quentin. Uh, this one, Live at Folsom, though, is the real standout, and uh, it's, uh, it's a remarkable record. It's uh, Johnny Cash at his, you know, absolute, to me, his absolute pinnacle. Um, he mixes every genre that he tackled through his career, so straight-ahead country, some, you know, rockers, some sort of comedy novelty stuff that he's so good at that he could deliver, and duets with June, and, um, you know, it, it really was a remarkable uh, he, he a bunch of prison songs that and some some classic standards like Long Black Veil and um, some others that are, are sort of mournful and wistful, uh, sort of walking prisoners, I guess, through the emotional spectrum uh, that you could possibly be feeling. But you know the standouts again, uh, Folsom Prison Blues, which was uh, one of the singles, and um, Boy Named Sue, which is also a single uh, from this record, were both on the charts. Um, 
I don't know. Actually, uh, you know, one of the things that I think were one of the misconceptions of Cash's career or his life were was one that he was actually served in prison, which he never did, and the other, uh, which I actually. Um, mistook was that Merle Haggard was at this Folsom prison concert in, in all actuality that story is true but he was actually at the San Quentin concert not the uh, Folsom concert so what do you guys think of uh, Cash and Folsom prison oh I, I think that it, it definitely stands out one of my favorite parts about this and, and I love the the choice is really that you know it, it stands out as one of the all-time great live albums and I think that this is uh, this is going to be a, a subject that we'll we'll tackle probably in its own podcast at some point because it's a difficult thing to pull off I mean it really requires uh, I think you know somebody who who has the sort of charisma and presence to to carry on um, you know some of the stage banter that that accompanies these songs and usually that kind of stuff uh, I think gets in the way of the music when you're actually listening to it in your headphones or or you put the album on but in this case it's you know it's story time with Johnny Cash and and I really don't I, I don't want to cut through any of it you know I, I just want to hear it as is and and um, well I guess I won't say I, I want to imagine that I was there um, yeah. but, uh, but I think just about, you know, any, any, as a witness, <laughs> but that is one of the things about this album is that it's a, you know, um, they did it, they, it was two concerts that they, they culled from. Um, but one of them was so far superior to the other that it is almost a seamless, uh, yeah, there's the, only two, it was two, the second take, right? Like they, they it was, recorded no, it was twice in the, a day or. Yeah, but it was actually the first one. They actually only took two songs from the second uh, show uh, to put on the album. So it really is almost it almost is a, a an experiential record, unlike you know something like Kiss Alive or Frampton Comes Alive or something, where you know I'm sure we can all imagine ourselves being stoned in in uh, you know a Civic Center in Detroit in 1976. But um, the whole idea of having this you know audience that isn't going anywhere, um, and how much they really appreciated his being there and his concern. Um, Talk the whole thing just kind of adds up to, to like a, a weirdly good feeling for a album recorded in a penitentiary. Yeah, it's a- well, I think too, if you ever were to recommend one Johnny Cash album, this is it yep. for me. I think uh, it has all the songs that you, you, I mean, my, all of my favorite Johnny Cash songs I'll say, but I think all of his best songs, and then also has the best sort of straight ahead versions of those songs. I mean, like all guys in the sixties and fifties, some of Johnny Cash's stuff could be sort of mirrored in, in overproduction or, or lots of orchestration. And this is really just a straight-ahead rocker, uh, country rocker, and, and those songs kind of laid bare in um, one of my faves as well. Yeah, I will say, um, uh, having seen Johnny Cash live a couple of times, I had the you know great pleasure and privilege of seeing Johnny Cash twice um, you know, in my life, uh, he really came, you know, he's one of those guys who couldn't capture fully on a record. So, uh, live recordings as good as it gets. Jerry, what's your number five from 1976? Yeah. So, uh, kind of piggybacking off Frampton comes alive, which was 1976, <laughs> but not in my top five. Although I do like that album quite a bit. Um, it was, it's an interesting year, 76. I kind of came to it thinking that a lot of my favorite punk records came out in 76, but it actually really 77 was the year that that punk really broke. And of course, there's one that I'll get to later that sort of started that trend. But, um, you know, like you went, I had a a couple albums that were sort of on the short list, ACDC, High Voltage, and Dirty Deeds Done Cheap, for sure. And I'm a huge uh, Boz, Skaggs, Silk Degrees fan. Oh, yeah. But um, they didn't quite make the cut. So I'm going to start off with... I think one of all of our favorite artists who unfortunately passed this year, and that's David Bowie's Station to Station. 
And this is uh, sort of the first album in a trilogy of albums called The Berlin Years, or the thin, when he turned into sort of the Thin White Duke. And is is really a transition album for Bowie. It, it's when he kind of went from, you know, the third transition, I'll say, or maybe even fourth transition, he, he kind of went from the glam rocker to the Philly soul of young Americans into, you know, to the Berlin years, which which sort of marks a very distant, more experimental time period. And the re- one of the reasons I think Station to Station, Station to Station sticks out of that period so much is I was always introduced to Lowe as kind of the, the pinnacle album of that time period. I like Lowe, but I think Lowe is a very distant album, where Station to Station actually has some of that disco um, soul that Young Americans had and some of his earlier stuff had, but then mixed in with a lot of experimentation and a lot of new synth sounds. Um, you know, lots of standout tracks. To me, it's a short album with some long songs, but Station to Station, the song itself, the title track, is is amazing. Uh, TVC 1-5 is, is a great... That song goes on mixes all the time. It's actually one of my favorite Bowie songs. I think and I really like some of the slower ones, like Stay as well and, and uh, Wild is the Wind. Yeah. I think both of those those first two, though, the, uh, Station to Station and uh, TVC 1-5, are both, like... They're, you're right. This is a transitional record, and both of them. I mean, TVC One Five particularly is. When I think about it, I never think about it this way. But it, it's it's full. It's like a full on soul song, and but it's yeah, a, it's no, it's like a soul song. It feels like it's a soul song written about computers or something, um, which is kind of a, a an odd exposition. But it, if you go back and listen to it, it's really in his vocal delivery where you know things like Young Americans. He really kind of took he took that soul persona on and, and sang as a soul singer. He has fame on this too, which kind of follows that track. But um, but it, it's sort of like a, a more jilted kind of distant delivery. And then you know obviously the music's a little more machine like on this, even though it is you know fun, to your point funky and, and soulful at the same time. That's a I, I love that. I, it's one of my favorite Bowie albums, and I feel like it's one that gets kind of stuck between the couch cushions uh, with a lot of people. It kind of doesn't pop for a lot of people. But anyway, uh, Christian, what's your number five from 1988? So from 1988, so yeah, um, I will uh, I will start off with uh, Mud Honey's um, Mud Honey's album uh, Super Fuzz Big Muff, which uh, I think is probably one of the uh, greatest, if not the greatest, album named after a, a distortion pedal, or I guess a pair of distortion pedals. Um, this album, I think, really, uh, really set up, um, you know, set up the grunge sound, right? I mean, it's it just got that opening track, "Touch Me, I'm Sick," which is just absolutely throttling, um, and you know, it's it's uh, incredibly sort of high tempo, um, you know, dissonant, loud, crunchy, uh, great guitars all the way through. Um, and, you know, initially actually uh, uh, released as, as an EP, but then subsequently released um, and both on Sub Pop um, with, uh, with a collection of singles from, um, that they'd collected over, over that sort of 87, 88 period. Um, I think it really stands out as, as sort of the, the first and, and ultimate um, grunge album, right? I mean, we wouldn't have Nirvana without these guys. We wouldn't have had Pearl Jam. Um, and uh, I really do think it's a sound that, that hasn't quite been captured since. Um, I, you know, I think my, my favorite... Uh, my favorite part of this really is just the fact that unlike, you know, whether it's MC5 or Stooges or some of those guys who tapped into that really um, sort of visceral, uh, uh, aggressive kind of rock sound, um, 
they didn't they didn't ever slow it down. Um, you know, there really aren't uh, aren't songs on this that I think uh, uh, sort of you know cut the tempo in half and sort of leave you um, leave you wondering what happened to the to to the adrenaline flow. It just you know it shoots out of a cannon from the from the very opening track and and you know it doesn't really ever let up. Yeah, I think there's a good argument to be made that "Touch Me, I'm Sick" is one of the greatest rock songs of all time. So, um, and it, what a great way to kick off a record. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think uh, this definitely falls into the category of, you know, if, if, if nothing else had come after that song, I mean, it, it would still stand out as, as, as one, of my, uh, one of my all-time favorite records. But the thing is, you know, I, I really do think it holds up top to bottom. So, It's a great, great choice. I have one quick thing on Mudhoney, too. I mean, and I don't know when, if you can attest to this, but they kind of seemed like they came off like an isolated island at the time. You know, it was a band that didn't look like other sort of alternative acts, didn't sound like other alternative acts, kind of had that heavy, uh, almost heavy metal slash kind of punk sound. And, and, you know, just, it's funny. I think it was being in the Pacific Northwest at that time, you were sort of cut off from, from you know, Planet Cool. It was an and, island, uh, Mud yeah. Honey was, yeah, Mud Honey was their own original kind of... Uh, Hybrid of a lot of... Awesome. Yeah, yeah, I think it's kind of cool. Like, if you forget uh, how much, you know, sort of um, interconnectedness we have now. Um, everybody knows what everybody else, you know, can look like, fashion, even, you know, style-wise, whatever. But, you know, back in, the, in those days, you were still sort of, you know basically trying to guess what somebody looked like when they did an album and and the bands from the Pacific Northwest did very little to give away what their uh you know they, there weren't a whole lot of promo photos and things I mean I remember seeing Mud Honey back then and and they 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 seemed kind of outside the bubble of style and not not willfully um you know conscientious objectors to it but or maybe they were even you know it just didn't you know there weren't cool haircuts and they weren't cool dressers and uh, they just kind of played hard, heavy rock, and uh, uh, but didn't really belong to a particular subsect of anything. Yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely a, a point in time. You know, it was a moment when it, it hadn't necessarily taken the nation um, by by storm the way it had by by the time that uh, you know Nevermind came out or something like that. So I mean, yeah. it really was. You know, the fact that that grunge sort of adopted the fashion sensibilities or. Um, uh, sort of generalize them, you know, as, as the sort of like average loser slacker look. Um, I think that's just what they look like. Yeah, I think we can kind of thank thank Mud Honey for Nirvana, and we can kind of blame Pearl Jam for Candlebox. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, so my number four, moving along, my number four is uh, uh, an album near and dear to my heart, Sweetheart of the Rodeo by The Birds, and. Um, I love this album, and, and part of the reason I love it, I think, is because I really didn't discover it until quite a bit later, and I discovered it when it was reissued, uh, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and um, I was already, uh, I was a Birds fan, you know, sort of, uh, but not a, not a die, you know, die in the wool, I love bird songs when they come on the radio, but, you know, they sort of shifted genres a lot, and so there was, you know, you had your Eight Miles High Birds, you had your... Um, I'm younger than that now, or, uh, you know, and the, you know, ton of Dylan covers, but so they never really had like a focused identity outside of like Roger McGuinn's Ben Franklin glasses and the fact that, you know, David Crosby was in the band. Um, what, what they ultimately did, and this was the last album they put out, um, is, uh, you know, they, they were down to two, two members and they linked up with Graham Parsons, who they hired to be their keyboard player or piano player. And he took them in a in a very um, 
you know, sort of uh, classically Southern country kind of um, direction. And they wound up recording Sweetheart of the Rodeo in Nashville. Um, so they were in... Uh, they tried to make a fairly traditional country record, and if you listen to the songs on it, I mean, so, there's some Leuven Brothers covers. There's you know some very uh, odd choices. I love you know I like the Christian life uh, things where it kind of sounded like they were taking the piss out of country, but uh, and country folks kind of felt that. So a lot of country folks thought that they were uh, making a, a, a joke out of country, and then the rock and roll folks. Uh, thought they were making a country record, which nobody in rock and roll really wanted to hear. So the album was a big flop, um, and it and wound up uh, being the end of the birds. Um, the other story being that uh, Graham Parsons, uh, when they were getting ready to tour South Africa, uh, left the band. Um, he claimed to have left it for uh, a very lofty, um, you know, his... Uh, to, to go die? Um, was that the... No, to, to, to re- his refusal to tour any country that had apartheid, which is a very noble gesture, but uh, in all actuality, when they interviewed the other guys, they were like, yeah, he was... He met Keith Richards, who was his idol, and, and wound up becoming friends with Keith, Keith Richards and was like, I'm going to stay in London and hang out with Keith. And it actually changed the direction. Keith of, had better drugs. Yeah, it wound up changing the direction of two bands, really. I mean, I think... Uh, Sweethearts of the Sweetheart of the Rodeo uh, was a full-on you know country record, like I said, and um, you know with some great songs, 100 Years from This Day, and um, but it also wound up changing the Stones' course, where they went from you know really diehard blues fans to adding more of a southern twang and and country uh, licks to their you know their guitar and and vocals. So anyway, that's my number four, Sweetheart of the Rodeo by the Birds. Um, I know Jared's a big fan of this, and and the reason I talk about the reissue is that it, it uh, the original packaging of the album had they uh, Graham Parsons recorded a lot of the lead vocals for uh, the songs, and those were uh, taken out by the record company and replaced by um, re-recordings of those songs with Roger McGuinn on lead, uh, who had traditionally been the bird singer, um, but the re-release when it when uh, they repackaged the album back in the late 90s early 2000s they they gave both sets of vocals and and the songs by Graham Parsons the a lot of them were demos and they were absolutely fantastic and you could see exactly where um you know that 70s country rock was going to come from and in California they they sort of birthed it so you can blame them for the eagles i suppose What's your number four? Yeah, so um, going 
away from country into uh, soul. I'm going to, uh, an album that actually tops a lot of 1976 lists and is in, certainly in my, my, my top four here is uh, Stevie Wonder's song, in, Songs in the Key of Life. And um, this is a, uh, a huge double album. I think there's like 21 tracks on it. It comes during a period where Stevie had, had stayed on Motown, but it, it gained complete control of his artistic uh, freedom, plays, you know, start playing every instrument. It's uh, kind of a grouping of albums that people kind of consider his sweet spot with in the inner visions in the 70s, um, Hotter Than July, this album, um, and Talking Book. And so... Um, Songs in the Key of Life, I mean, double albums are tough, right? There's, there's not that many good ones. This is one that, that's perfect. It influences tons of people today that, that we like, Alicia Keys, Beyonce, um, you know, Erica Badu. Everyone in hip-hop. Everyone in hip-hop, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those records. But, um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to live with a guy who's a good friend of mine who, you know, I think cherished cherish soul music as much as, as we like indie rock or, or punk rock. And he just turned me on to all of these records. I always had Musiquarium, which is actually something when you gave me, which is sort of Stevie's greatest hits, and realized, wow, this guy is not just, you know, in, in my heyday, which would have been Christian's birth year, was I just called to, to say I love you, you know? And so I kind of knew Stevie is, is a bit of a cheesy synth pop, um, you know, obviously. Has been, for him, yeah. But yeah, but it was just kind of like boring, lame pop songs. To go back and really hear how political he was, how, you know, I mean, this, this album hits the whole spectrum. So you have the, the songs that are political, you have songs about love, um, you know, songs such as Village Ghetto Land, uh, the intro itself, Love's in Need of Love Today, and then uh, homages to people like Duke Ellington, Sir Duke, and then I Wish, which are great, you know, rock and uh, funk songs. Plus, like Bowie, he, Stevie was never afraid to kind of experiment with synth sounds, with moogs, moogs um, with different <laughs> instrumentation. So people like Herbie Hancock play on this album. It, it's just a, a really broad scope of, of soul music. And I would say if, if you know, you, you take a listen to this album, it, it's, a, it's one of those albums you definitely need to listen to all the way through. But some of the standouts that I would even say, you know, are worth popping on on their own, the song As is one of the best Stevie Wonder songs ever. And then, of course, Sir Duke and I Wish are great, you know, dancey funk songs as well. And then if you are a Coolio fan, which you two may be, you can hear where his uh, hit came from in Pastime Paradise. But just, um, I'm a big Stevie fan, and this is just a, an immense Just album. a couple of, uh, of details that I think are worth pointing out here because, um, you know, they really do, like... They, they do help to, to sort of convey the scope and the magnitude of this thing. Um, you know, it took two years in the studio to make this. It was obviously, it was recorded in, in two different places and, and um, mixed elsewhere. It was recorded in, uh, in California and New York. But, but the fact, it's 104 minutes long. I mean, it's like, it's a feature-length film, right? And it was actually a double album that was dropped um, that, that additionally had an EP that was dropped with it uh, as, as part of the double album. So, like, the guy, I mean... You know, he he basically just channeled all of his creative energy for for two full years, and it, and it was on the back. I mean, I think it's really important um, when you think about the industry at the time um, that it came on the back of what it was like the biggest. It, it was the biggest recording deal that that anybody had ever signed. I think it was like forty mil or something like that, um, and. Uh, and, you know, he basically was given full creative license to do whatever the hell he wanted and take as long as he needed. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't get that. And it was a huge hit. Right. Which is, yeah. you know, unlike a lot of people who get that license. Tusk. And, yeah. and sort of, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Um, 
you know, go out, or even Marvin Gaye with what's going on, there was a lot of fear around that not being a hit, ended up being a hit, but, but you know, this was a massive hit and stayed on the charts, on, you know, R&B charts, rock charts, uh, you know. Everything. Well, it covers the full, like, emotional spectrum. If you want to go back and listen to it for, you know, to, to get your sort of political rocks off, you can do that. If you want to go back and listen to it for, you know, sweet love songs, you can do that. If you want to go, you know, there's literally everything that you could possibly want out of an album. It's, it's contained in some form or another here. Um, I, I think it's it's definitely available to you. Yeah, and it's not erratic. It's it's just a uh, you know it's it just beautifully sequenced and and I don't know. I think it's phenomenal. Anyway, Christian, your number four. Sure. Um, so my number four here is uh, well, I, I won't call it controversial, but controversial to me only in the sense that that it's not actually my favorite Metallica album, but that is uh, Injustice for All. Um, you know, I think that, that this, it's interesting because depending on, on who you talk to, this is either, um, it's, it's obviously the last of the, of the great four first Metallica albums, um, uh, starting in 1983 and, you know, they, they put out a sequence there of, of just, you know, really the, the best classic thrash metal you're going to be able to find, um, but this, I think, sort of diverged from the path a little bit. It was, in my view, and and I always thought growing up that this was uh, this was a function of just um, of the CD quality or the MP3 quality or whatever it was. But it really is like it's a tinnier recording um, than uh, than than their previous uh, three albums, and really, I, I think than anything they'd um, they'd done before. And the the uh, fact is, they in the in the mixing stage only use the close mics so you end up with a um with a drum sound that that almost almost sounds like a click track i mean there are parts of it where literally like the snare almost sounds like a click track to me um and uh rather than um rather than that sort of like uh you know pounding rumbling sound that they achieve on um some of their other albums but well i think that's actually kind of the curse of the 80s was the the larger the budget the more dicking around they did the 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 thinner the sound got because the more produced it got and that's a shame i think that i think spoiled a lot of great records well, that could have been it's interesting better. I, I would agree with you i think that actually the the inverse was true here where it was i mean it was almost underproduced um or it didn't you know it, it perhaps had the the setup for one kind of production but then um you know fell uh, fell victim to uh, not spending enough time or not having the same guys who were actually there for the recording there for the there for the mixing process but um you know ultimately uh i, I think that you know this this did produce mega hits um you know one in particular which um which is, you know, one of the most well-known, um, certainly, uh, metal songs ever, and the, I think it, it was the first one they broke out, and it was the first one that really got a lot of MTV play in mainstream. Their first yeah, hours. Right? Yeah. I don't know. No, I don't I'm know not. if it was their first, but it was definitely the no, first it wasn't one their first, that got. But it was the first yeah. one. Yeah, first one that got mainstream play. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is the other source of controversy that I was going to mention. Or, you know, again, the, the true the true hardcore thrash metal '80s fans will look at this album and say, "Okay, this is when this is when Metallica turned." Um, you know, this was the the moment right before they went so mainstream and sort of I won't say they abandoned their roots, but they definitely became a different band. There's no question. Um, and so for me, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get anything better than kill them all. Um, that's just, that's just my opinion. I know, you know, and I think Wyndham, you said your favorite before is master of puppets, master of puppets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a- 
Go ahead. That's more of a fun. That's not a. That's not. That's less of a function of of analytics and more of a function of of nostalgia for where it was when I got it. You know. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I, I just I think it's uh, this definitely had the most um, you know most sort of complex songwriting. You know, they weren't necessarily contained songs. You know, quite in quite the same way that they had on their their previous uh, previous couple of records. These were much um, sort of longer and and almost. Uh, a little bit less structured, I might say, um, but um, but definitely it was. They were song suites, kind of. Yeah, and it was almost sort of or- orchestral in the right. You know, they were almost compositions, I guess. But um, and and they just sort of they started in one place and ended in another, as opposed to starting in one place, going different places, and coming back to the original place. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, anyway, I, I still love it. Uh, you saw them on that tour, right? I did. I that was. Uh, I was going to say this is the album where they made the leap to, you know, headlining arenas. Yeah. And um, I saw them uh, with. Um, I saw them at the Worcester Centrum um, that year uh, with Queensrÿche opening. Sadly, and um, it was really hi- highlighted for me. I think when you're talking about song suites and and um, you know compositional work, I think nothing hammers that home more than a. A lady of justice, a giant lady of justice statue, whose arms and then head blow off during the uh, during the uh, crescendo of of a guitar solo. Shit, I have to get so, one of those. Uh, yeah, you really. Did. It was kind of awesome. Do you, do you think they? Uh, do you think they reattached them between shows, or did they get entirely new ladies of justice? Oh no, no no! I think there was only one lady of justice. I think she was pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty banged up pretty by the toasty. end of the tour. <laughs> pretty, pretty toasty by the time they hit Phoenix. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was pretty, it was a pretty funny, uh, rocking show. And, uh, I, um, I appreciated the, uh, yeah, the theatrics of, of a good metal show since I was, you know, largely locked in basements, uh, you know, in a mosh pit. So, um, anyway, uh, that's your number four. I'm going to jump on to my number three, which, um, is one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, it was weird trying to trying to sequence these because it was really wrestling with what are my favorites versus what are the uh, most important ones. And in this case, I had to make my own personal favorite take a little bit of a backseat to to the scope of history. But um, the Kinks, um, where the Village Green Preservation Society came out, um, uh, in actually the week I was born um, in November of '68. And it is one of my favorite albums. There was uh, much like uh, it's a weird uh, correlation that I hadn't really thought about until I put this list together. But like Sweetheart of the Rodeo, uh, Village Green Preservation Society was 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 a complete commercial flop. And part of the reason was is that people kept progressing and progressing this line of of sort of outrageousness and psychedelia and and you know sort of uh, overt drug and sex you know uh, kind of thing and uh, the Kinks uh, as a reaction to that push uh, made the most conservative British record of all time. Basically, it sounds like the soundtrack to, to Tea Time. Uh, in east in the country in East Sussex, but it's it's basically a a, a sort of winsome record um, that's uh, based on childhood reverie and memory and and uh, wonder remembering a once great uh, nation that was kind of uh, going a little haywire. So you know you get songs like um, you know Picture Book and Do You Remember Walter and the title track We Are the Village Green Preservation Society. Um, they're all, it's all about nostalgia and being British. And, um, it really was a, a, a ready aim fire, shoot yourself right in the foot when it comes to, uh, 
having your finger on the pulse of what was going on. Um, it was when everybody else was letting their hair down, uh, protesting um, politicians and, and lobbing Molotov cocktails. Uh, they were they decided to throw on a tie and press a shirt and have tea time. So um, that is uh, the Village Green Preservation Society. Again, I think um, it aged beautifully, much the same as Sweetheart of the Rodeo did. Sweetheart of the Rodeo, again, you know, as the American version of that, the world was going radical and the birds went super traditional with a bunch of Leuven Brothers covers and, and um, you know, songs about being Christian and, and abstaining from, from, you know, Satan's, uh, um, you know, uh, trickery and, and uh, you know, temptation. But uh, one cool thing about Village Green, too, and, and uh, I think it's a little bit overlooked, is the Kings have been banned from the U.S., so a lot of those British invasion bands were all, you know, basically playing American music in a British style, which was great. But the Kinks, to your point, sort of reverted back to, you know, being British, and, and I think in turn came out with a sound that influenced, you know, hundreds and millions of, of Britpop bands, you know, going forward. And, and without that album, I don't think any of that, that sound would have happened. And I think if they hadn't been cut off from the, you know, the blues-obsessed, you know, U.S., that wouldn't have happened either. Yeah, who would have thought nationalism in 68 would be, uh, would, uh, you know, run so count, you know, count, contrary to, to uh, where the, the wave of culture was going. But um, so that's my number three. Jerry, what's your number three, 1976? Yeah, so I mentioned that, uh, you know, the year punk kind of broke was 77, but the album that broke punk open is my number three, and that's The Ramones, The Ramones, the uh, debut album. So, um, you know, this is an album that it's been written about, talked about, it's beloved, and, and I think to your point, you know, it, it's probably a lot of people's number one, it's not my number one, but uh, it is the album that started it all and and right off the start you know you've got blitzkrieg bob beat on the brat judy is a punk and i think the funny thing about this album is when you look back is you know seymour stein who ended up signing the ramones sire records and i think the ramones themselves before the album broke you know actually thought this was going to be a hit record and and you know they they really thought this is okay these are catchy 50s style rock and roll songs you know, um, that are going to be just huge. And, and unfortunately, you know, FM radio and AM radio at the time thought completely differently, and, and uh, this was a, a huge flop as well. But, um, you know, became probably one of the most beloved albums and, and influenced, you know, I'd say almost every band we love today and, and um, listen to post-Ramones. So it's uh, it's great. You know, it's funny. I think Christian and I have had this conversation before, and um and I'll turn to Christian on that, that, you know, the Ramones were kind of this, you know, you kind of get introduced to punk when you're younger. So when you lived through this album, yeah. I was introduced to the Ramones because I was getting into sort of hardcore punk and, and uh, alternative rock and things like that. And, and you listen to it and it's really not that fast and not that offensive and, and uh, you know, truly is kind of, uh, you know, sort of it's pop music. But, you know, when you go back and put yourself in the context of 1976 and all the, you know, for instance, uh, Songs in the Key of Life versus the Ramones' first album, there, there's quite a difference. There's a great quote yeah, that said, well, you know, it's all about speed, hooks, stupidity, and simplicity. But a difference you know, in musical literacy well. there, too, I think. But, <laughs> um, you know, yeah, yeah I, I, I totally agree with, with, 
you know, I, look, it's awesome. And but uh, when Amu has used the line with this in particular, like, I always say, like, yeah, they have they have like it's it every song sounds the same and you're like yeah it's a great fucking song um but you know i, I think in this case like it, it's sort of like oldies punk to me which is a weird concept but i mean it's like it's the punk i was allowed to listen to when i was eight because the punk that was being made when i was eight was not suitable for eight-year-olds um right. so you know i think that that in and of itself sort of colored the way that i i like it wasn't rebellious by the time I came around, and I, I think that that sort of you know when you when you take some of the um, social context away from it, uh, you know you have you have like really cool pop melodies, um, very singable lyrics, uh, very singable you know uh, like tuneful music um, with like fun loud guitars and sort of raucousness. But but again, you know I, I think I didn't I was unable ever and still to a certain extent am, except anachronistically to sort of like appreciate sort of what it meant and how it fit into the, um, into the social context of the time. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the things I think that is, uh, you know, so interesting to explore between the three of us and, you know, given the the sort of generational difference is that it's hard to understand how radical certain things were because they sound, um, in retrospect, so tame, you know, I would say the Sex Pistols fall into the same category uh, in 77 of coming out with an album that people thought was going to rip the, you know, the sort of uh, fabric of society apart. And you go back and listen to it. It doesn't sound that far off of a, of a, pop, a regular radio pop song. It's Beach Boys uh, punk. Yeah, exactly. And, and, the, and the Ramones particularly, I mean, sound a lot like the Ronettes. Yeah. Um, on speed, which <laughs> they were. So, uh, um, you know, when you... Wh- yeah, you mentioned... Um, you know it does sound radical, Wyndham, uh, even to this day, um, and that is it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, uh, which would be my number three here. Um, and uh, Public Enemies' 1988 album, which um, you mentioned that the Kinks came out the week you were born. This album actually came out the day I was born. Um, so all in all, two pretty great contributions to uh, to American history, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, this is this, I think, really did kind of rewrite hip-hop at the time, you know? Um, and it, Chuck D uh, was, like, I mean, his lyrics were incredibly political and fierce and aggressive and hostile and just, I think, you know, totally uncompromising in terms of their message, um, which, all of which really did, you know, just was channeled through this incredibly sort of, like, ferocious beatbox-style East Coast uh, East Coast rap. Um but I think the thing that, you know, it, it, like he wasn't alone in that in the sense that I think other MCs at the time, um, like Eric B maybe or, or uh, KRS, you know, they addressed some of the, the political stuff. Um, but I think the, the differences and the reason that this was like so, um, it, it sort of stands the test of time is like there's also that like really a, a, a sort of a cool, a good sense of comedy as well. Like Flava Flav really helped sort of uh, balance out um, what would have otherwise just been like a, a totally terrorizing record. And I'm not saying, you know, and it was, mm-hmm. it was terrorizing in a good way, but the fact that they were able to balance each other so well sort of, I think, made it more palatable to a wider audience. No, it did yeah, really the, well. The, the music was fierce. The delivery was fierce. It was it was almost, I mean, in real time, I couldn't figure out, um, you know, how the band was constructed or, or whose vision it was to have this sort of silly hype man. Um, and, you know, I mean, cause I, I saw them. Uh, actually, this is, you know, every one of your, uh, I think the bands on your list, I saw the year that you were born. Um, I saw 
Public Enemy on New Year's 1989, and this was before you know the the mystery had sort of been unra- you know unraveled, or, or you know Chuck D became much more of a uh, familiar figure in, in more mainstream media. I mean, he was still an outlier. He was a you know he was a, a, a very authoritative and um, you know seemingly angry character. Um, you know, the band would come out and they would have both sides of the stage lined with guys in full military regalia carrying semi-automatic weapons. I mean, obviously probably fake ones, but, um, you know, but then still it, it, it looked badass. I mean, it looked serious. And I remember going to see them in, on New Year's Eve in 1989 at the World in, in New York on, on Avenue C, which was its own adventure. And um, it was, you know, we were really, you know, everybody was trying to play it off as cool, but everybody was in the back of their mind a little bit scared. Um, yeah, there's a real, and, like, uh, call to arms quality about it, I think. And, you know, there yeah. was, it did sort of, um, you know, the fact that they, they borrowed a lot of, um, you know, the, I think, sort of symbolism and, and um, of, uh, you know, that tapped into things like the Nation Black of, Panthers. yeah, the Nation of Islam and, and you know, really militant Panthers. social political movements over the, pre- you know, over the previous 30 or 40 years. And it was sort of uh, picking up the, the mantle um, of, uh, of, you know, civil rights progress and, and um, yeah it was righteous it was it was yeah. well, outraged and righteous and it was it was really that's really hard hitting shit direct. yeah yeah and it, the music I still think you know I think the production value on those albums yeah. still stands up as you know some of the best ever um, the bomb just, squad it, on the bricks it, yeah, it just hits. It was you. disarming at first, though. You know, I mean, it was something totally different. The sirens and the the sort of wall of of sound that they created, it was completely new. But also, kind of, a, I mean, it, it wasn't a sound that initially I think a lot of people liked, and then all of a sudden it kind of grew on you, or you got, or Chuck D came in with his, his who has a really great voice for an MC as well, which helps a lot, and uh, and kind of just took it to the next level. But I remember those, you know, don't believe the hype coming out. And just that constant like siren going off in the background, and just being like, "What is this?" You yeah. know, <laughs> like this is crazy. And then you know, it's one of my favorite albums still today. Yeah, it's a, it was a weird thing. I mean, even the you know, like you said, the, with the siren and the you know all that stuff, it it, it was. Like at first, it was very distracting. It was very uh, off-putting, and, and you're like, "Why the fuck would they put that in the middle of the song?" And um, there was a reason for all of it. It was incredibly well thought out, beautiful, awesome record. So anyway, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will have our number two and number one from 
for. Building up a camp for the brothers and sisters. Why across the country has a soap for the war? We got to get them straight. Come on now, they're gonna have to wait. Till we get it right. Radio stations are questioning black as they call us a black, but we'll see a complainers. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, today we are talking about defending our year, which uh, in our non-traditional family means um, uh, the year, the very disparate years we were born. I'm 68, Jeremy 76, and Christian 1988. So um, we are down to our top two each, and my number two um, is uh, pretty epic. Um, I, I feel like I had a, a, an unfair disadvantage being this old, but, um, my number two is Beggar's Banquet by the Rolling Stones. And I love Beggar's Banquet in and of itself, but I also, uh, love the change of direction that Beggar's Banquet sing, uh, signaled. I mean, the, the album before Beggar's Banquet was, um, Satanic Majesty's Request, which is just kind of a trifle of a psychedelic record. And then... What I, uh, you know, what happened, um, and what is obviously what you're witnessing with, with a beggar's banquet is, you know, sort of Keith Richards wrestling the reins away, um, and becoming the real uh, leader of the band and its musical direction. Um, beggar's banquet's the first, I think, in in uh, uh, the run of four albums, probably the greatest four album run of any band in the history of rock and roll. Uh, Beggar's Banquet, um, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Exile on Main Street. And Beggar's Banquet itself sort of signals that um, that signature dirty blues sound that the Stones uh, maintained uh, throughout. And um, it was the last uh, of the uh, Brian Jones albums. And, and, you know, as if you read in about the album itself, um, that's a bit of a misnomer, too, because Keith really plays most of... Uh, almost all the guitar parts on the album plays a lot of the bass parts on the album, so it's um, it's you know it's the farewell to Brian Jones um, and Brian Jones's influence and the hello Keith Richards and uh, the birth of the very very American uh, influence sound and American sounding um, dirty blues Rolling Stones. Um, I, There's a sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. There is a um, to kind of piggyback on your Keith Richards thing. There's a movie, Sympathy for the Devil, which is the title track of that album, and one of the best, obviously one of the most classic and best Stone songs. That's hilarious to watch. The movie kind of sucks, but it's literally them recording that song, and it's kind of cool. It starts off as, as you know, kind of a, a gospel tinge song, and then Keith really just takes over in the studio. But the the funniest part is he kind of sticks Brian Jones in like a box because at this point Brian Jones is like fried, like unplugs his guitar and's like, "Here, Brian, just strum." <laughs> <laughs> and then like by the end, Bill. Wyman's literally playing like a tambourine in like a closet. He's just like, yeah, Bill, you're, you're, you're over there. And like, you know, Keith's on the bass and guitar. It's, it's worth watching just to see how much he had to do with that sound. Oh, yeah. that album. It's, it's hard in a row. No, 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 no. That's, a, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, there's a Sympathy for the Devil, one of the great lead-off tracks of any album ever. Um, and one of the, you know, um, you know, if you were, if your if your parents were afraid of the Rolling Stones before this, they were doubly afraid of them after this. Um, you know, you get songs like No Expectation, Dear Doctor, <clears throat> but the the sort of ripping uh, um, 
guitar songs that I love on this album are the are the a couple of songs that you don't necessarily hear on the radio and weren't part of that sort of hot rocks compilation um, thing. It's a jigsaw puzzle and uh, stray cat blues. Uh, both of these are just you know ugly, mean sounding, you know harsh uh, guitar songs that are you know I think are phenomenal. They're you know they they're split up on the album sequentially by Street Fighting Man, which is another Stones classic. Um, and then it, uh, one of the things I actually, when I was look, going back and looking at um, uh, the, the four albums that I just talked about, uh, one of the things that <clears throat> had never really occurred to me is all four of those albums have phenomenal um, final tracks. You get Salt of the Earth, Moonlight Mile, um, Soul Survivor, Soul Survivor and uh, what was the other one? Um, you can't always yeah, get what you, what you want. want. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you're talking closing tracks that are as, you know, epic as any band's opening tracks ever. So I always thought that was kind of a, I think that's kind of a cool uh, little discovery to have made. I'm probably not the first person to think of that, but um, four of my favorite Stone songs, and they're the four last uh, songs on those albums. But anyway, that's my number two, Beggar's Banquet. Jer, what's your number two? So yeah, my number two, kind of, uh, if I close my eyes and think to pull-top Budweiser's, feathered hair, short, short jeans, um, I'm going to go with Boston, their debut album. And uh, it's funny, if you'd asked me this same question, you know, 15 years ago, this album wouldn't be close to my, my top five. I would have come up with something much more obscure and cool in my mind, but... I've grown to really love this album, and I think for good reason. It, it, it goes on that list that we, we often have kind of side conversation on of perfect albums. It's an album that I just always assume was greatest hits because it's... All of their know, good songs. Every song on it is a hit, <laughs> and it might as well be a greatest hits album. Um, you know, it's the master project of uh, Tom Schultz. Is that yeah, his Schultz. last name? Schultz. And, uh, you know, I think it was... Uh, was he Framingham, or was he down by the... Yeah, no, he's western or, suburbs. He is... Uh, okay, I think he's western from, like, suburbs, Wilmington or yeah. Framingham. Yeah, he went to MIT. Gotcha. And uh, just a studio wizard who, who kind of invented the arena rock sound before there was such a thing and, and you know, worked with a 12, 12-track 12 recording board. And basically, I think the demo was the album. I think they brought the demo to the, the record label. Brad Delp is the singer. Um, and, you know, they, I think Tom Schultz played everything else, guitar and everything, and, and it's just opens up with, you know, the classic more than a feeling, peace of mind, rock and roll band. You really can't go wrong. And, and it's funny, it's just, I think as I've gotten older, I've just come to respect really great music, and this album falls into really great music, where, you know, in my younger days, I, I had a little bit of a, you know, a bent of it had to be cool or indie or, or you know, different or, you know, anything that I could find to sort of separate myself. This is an album that I think everybody who likes rock and roll loves. You can certainly pop on any classic rock station and hear all of this album within, uh, you know, a couple hours span or at least, you know, four or five of a song. So um, Boston is my You know, it's funny. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of like, I also think it's just, it's, it's an incredible example of perhaps the most majestic um, home recording ever made uh, because, you know, the, the story behind this is that um, Schultz basically uh, didn't want to, I, I guess the, the label was putting a lot of pressure on him to come in and record um, on their terms, you know, where, where they wanted him to. Um, and so actually the, the reason that he hired Boylan, I think, in the first place, John Boylan, was was basically to, to run interference with the label and, and sort of um, create... Uh, 
uh, to convince them that they were in fact recording on the West Coast when in point of fact all of these guys were hanging out in his basement um, and he had complete control over the uh, over the recording process. Um, it sure as hell doesn't sound like it now, uh, which is even more impressive, I think. Um, but, you know, he was, after all, um, a rocket scientist. Well, yeah, I mean, literally an MIT rocket scientist. And one of the funniest things about that, uh, well, two things, uh, given the how you know sort of uncool uh, was the you know a lot of a lot of times the uh, moniker corporate rocket got hung on them you know in the late seventies, early eighties, and, and in all actuality they were as uncorporate as you could get. I mean, they were literally recording in a basement. But um, the other is that you know good. That a portion of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit, one of the sort of groundbreakingly, uh, you know, departure from the mainstream songs that, you know, ever hit, uh, was, it was a little tiny bit stolen from More Than a Feeling. Um, it was, uh, but yeah, it's it's phenomenal. And, and uh, the other is, uh, you know, personal anecdote, which is that uh, I believe Boston was the first LP I ever purchased and it was uh, I bought a picture disc for our older sister Sarah um, at Ta- uh, Tower Records in Berkeley uh, for Christmas, um, and uh, it was an album that I desperately wanted, and so I bought it for my sister for Christmas. Um, but there you go. Like all the best and, gifts. Uh, exactly, Christian. What was your number two? So my number two, um, which uh, came out, I guess just uh, about a month and a half after um, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back is Straight Outta Compton by N.W.A. Um, and it's kind of funny that these these two albums, you know, came out so close together because they really did sort of anchor, I think, the, um, you know, they, they stand as sort of the, the anchors or, or um, uh, bookends of, you know, East Coast and West Coast rap and, and so much of what was uh, what was built on that over the, over the subsequent sort of 10, 15 years. Um, you know, this album uh, was... I guess if if Public Enemy was um, you know trying to to sort of start a, a, a political upheaval or, or revolution and and you know a sort of um, and really sort of very thoughtfully um, tackling a lot of those sort of socio political issues that, that we talked about a minute ago, um, this was just like brutal, violent, and incredibly vulgar. And not to not to nerd out too much here, but I mean like vulgar in the traditional like you know. If you think about it in like the literary term sense, right? That it really it means it's it's common, it's base, it's like it's describing you know the the um, uh, the what what's sort of happening at the ground level among you know um, uh, the poorest people, and and really you know I think that this of course without ever actually touring this album um, uh, properly initially at least um, or uh, or without getting any any radio play for for obvious reasons you know this thing went platinum pretty quickly just because um it was so hyper aggressive uh songs like fuck the police um you know obviously um don't mince words um but i think in addition to that you know it was you know and they, they've subsequently described it as really um sort of uh, a testament to what was happening around them you know they were describing what they were seeing um and you know, I think that that's uh, th- that's sort of an important legacy and contribution that that created gangster rap, right? Yeah, and I, I mean, I it did have like this crazy impact. Um, it was that sort of verboten, you know. I mean, calling back to you know, sort of Elvis shaking his hips and not being able to be shown uh, south of south of the border, so to speak. Um, you know, I mean, this was an album that you know. Had your parents found it, you know, it would have been stricken from the rac- record. You, you know, this was a this was a very 
naughty uh, record to have. I mean, I, it came out when I was in college, and it was still, you know, one of those records that you were like, holy fucking shit. Um, you know, this thing is explosive. Uh, and, um, you know, I can only imagine people younger than me who, you know, who are still being monitored by their parents. And a lot of the, I think a lot of NWA's record sales did happen in the, in the suburbs. And, um, that would be me. Yeah. Jeremy. Um, (laughs) also did, do we think that the FBI realized that the only way to spike album sales by ruthless records, like better than any other way imaginable would be to send them a letter expressing their discontent with the uh, subject matter of fuck the police. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, it certainly worked, uh, you know, and I can't, I can imagine in real time them not being particularly frightened and also being, you know, celebrating madly when that happened. Cause I mean, there's nothing oh, better yeah, than it's like the federal break out the champagne glasses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and, and I, but it really was, it sounded dangerous. It was, it sounded dangerous in a different way than, um, public enemy. I mean, public enemy was this sort of, um, you know, organized, uh, chaos and, um, NWA was simply chaos. It was, um, you know, one was, one was a movement. The other was a riot. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a perfect, uh, perfect, um, way of describing it there. Yeah. So I'm going to move on to my number one album, and this is where I lay down my ace of spades and go, you know, pick up the pot. Because uh, my number one album of the year I was born in, and actually, the again, the week I was, uh, came out the same week as uh, Village Green Preservation Society, and the same week I was born, which is the Beatles' White Album, or um, as it is actually officially called, The Beatles. Um, it's a self-titled album that people just call the White Album. But... To me, this was, uh, you know, this is their first album post-Sgt. Pepper, which was, you know, their sort of in-studio revolution, which came on the heels of, of not touring any longer. And this was just their freak out. This was their sort of, oh, we have unlimited budget and unlimited time. Uh, let's make a double album that, you know, really goes all over the place. I mean, there's um, sort of 1940s era sort of traditional um you know, vaudevillian kind of songs on here. There's uh, songs about revolution. There's, um, you know, there's, it, it really runs the gamut. Um, I think all, everybody in the Beatles was really finding their own identity as a songwriter. I don't think, I think this is a sort of uh, beginning of the end of the group as a, uh, as a whole. I think they, you know, I think the, um, unlimited budget, the amount of money they were making, the amount of privacy they were seeding and, um, you know, their, where they were in their, in their respective lives, uh, really has a lot to do with where they all are on this. I mean, but that said, um, there's just phenomenal songs on this album. Um, you know, songs like Dear Prudence, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Happiness is a Warm Gun, Martha, my dear, uh, my favorite Beatles song. I'm so tired. Um, Sexy Sadie, Helter Skelter, Cry Baby Cry, uh, Revolution. Um, Pretty much all of them. Of we get it. Tame version. Yeah, no, but I'm. I'm I mean, I, 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 I unload, unpack all of those simply to say that there's a bunch of shit. Uh, you know, there's a handful of shitty songs on here too. I mean, Revolution Number Nine. I could live without ever hearing again. Piggies. I could live without ever hearing again. Um, you know, I. Uh, just overexposure makes me never want to hear Oblady Oblada again. But um, again, there's something for everyone. And, and you know, five year old me loved Rocky Raccoon. 
uh, 48-year-old made is a little more hesitant on that. I think it's a mishmash, and I think it's one of the few... I think it's really the only Beatles album where you can kind of... Um, you know, which doesn't feel cohesive in a way um, that really feels um, scattershot, but it also is a classic for that reason. It's a strange, almost, strange record. Almost like there there wasn't, I mean, it, in order to make a, a Beatles album truly cohesive, I think you have to polish it, um, shave off, you know, bits at the edges, and, and I think at some point you're always compromising on some of the different, you know, artists artists in the group. And this really feels like the one where they're, like, the the sort of the hugeness of um, each of their sort of monumental individual personalities and sort of creative geniuses really just is, allowed, is just laid bare. It's just sort of yeah, left out there, you know? I mean, because you have Abbey Road and Let It Be after this, and Let It Be, for me, feels cohesive, but it feels collectively like everyone's exhausted. That album yeah, says, you know, we're, we're tired. Uh, this album, I think people were still sort of uh, really intrigued by what you could do with a studio. Um, and sort of, I, I feel like there was a lot of time alone uh, spent as individuals during the recording of this album. So anyway, that's my number one album for 1968. Um, I, uh, I dare you to try and beat it. I don't think I'm going to beat it in scope, but I'm going to, uh, or, you know, in sort of classic terms, I mean, it's the White Album, you know, you can drop the mic and probably walk away. But uh, I, as far as an album I listen to, certainly more than the White Album today, is uh, the album, and I'm going to cheat a little bit here. So this album actually was recorded mostly in, in demo form in, in 1973, but it's my birth year and I will cheat if I want to. And it was released in 1976. Um, and that's the Modern Lovers debut album, Modern Lovers. And, um, you know, produced by John Cale, obvious connections to the Velvet Underground, um, Jonathan Richmond being the primary songwriter. I think he actually writes every song on the album, but kind of a, a you know, sort of super group of guys that would go on and, and be in other albums. Jerry Harrison, who went on to be in Talking Heads, David Robinson, I believe, was in the, in the Cars. He was a drummer for the Cars, yeah. Yeah, and um, Ernie Brooks. And so, you know, I mean, I think this album, like The Velvet Underground, has a lot of connections in the sense of, of sound and just sort of uh, vocal delivery and, and guitar delivery. But it's it's the opposite of, say, Nico or something, that it's totally accessible to a, a white suburban guy like myself. And um, I think this album just has that sound that, you know, I can relate to as a college kid or as, like, when I first sort of got into it or a... Um, suburban high schooler and you know their lyrical content of roadrunner driving around all night you know past the stop and shop with the radio on is uh you know basically my life yeah there's nothing lofty <laughs> about the lyrical content no, in this and, it's all about standard everyday life which almost presages exactly. presages so, so many of the, the i mean the beloved themes of of indie rock you know down the road right it almost feels i mean ahead of its time in that way it was just so yeah and, yeah, and timeless at the same time. It's an album that I think stands up today, like a lot of album, like a lot of you know the albums we mentioned actually in this list don't necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your point, Christian, it, it's an album that I feel like kind of catapulted the sound and the angular and, and sort of lyrics first and smart lyrics of a lot of bands that I ended up really being drawn to in, in my teens and twenties. And I don't think they would have existed necessarily if they hadn't heard this album. So, um, you know, again, you can, I think the whole album's great, start to finish. Um, some standouts, I love I'm Straight, mm-hmm. just 
for the fact that it's about Hippie Johnny. And uh, Roadrunner, obviously, is, is, you know, one of the greatest rock tunes as far as I'm concerned. Definitely on a, uh, a top 20 list at the very least. So, um, yeah, that's my pick for number one, 1976, Modern Lovers. Um, one of my favorite albums to this day, and an album that I play probably more than anything that was prior. Yeah, and solid choice. To your, to your Velvet some... Underground connection, one other uh, uh, story I read, and I've, I've got to I've got to figure out where I read this because I and I'm not sure that um, that uh, whether it's true or not, but I want to check it out um, because I think Jonathan Richmond was actually living in the earlier year in the earlier version, like when when a lot of these songs were recorded. He was when he was living down in New York. He was actually crashing on Lou Reed's couch, which is how he ended up meeting John Cale in the first place. And he like he just loved that guy's sound um, and and really sort of wanted to to emulate it. And I think he. Um, I think he accomplished that pretty well, but but definitely put his own personal stamp on it. And I just I also like that he just has sort of a sense of humor in this thing. Um, there's a sort of uh, uh, you know like casual, relaxed quality about him. I mean, he sounds like he genuinely enjoys sort of performing and and, and you know singing. So, well, if you've ever seen him perform, he certainly does enjoy performing. He uh, guy who works a crowd as well as anybody has I've ever seen. So he's a he's an oddball, but. Um, it's uh, I love that. I love that album. I also just wanted before uh, we we touch on Christian's number one record of uh, 1988. I just wanted to say that um, for every episode we record, we have a corresponding Spotify playlist, and so that all of these uh, songs that we're talking about uh, will be available under uh, on a uh, playlist called Defending Your Year. And um, with that, I will kick it to Christian to, to give us the number one and final album. All right, of 1988. So, uh, Wyndham, you, of course, uh, were contemporaries of these guys at, at UMass, but, um, but Surfer Rosa by Pixies is, is my number one for, for 1988. And I really, you know, to me, this is um, sort of one of the most, I guess, meaningful, beloved records I've, I've you know, I've got. Um, and it does have just a sort of uh, incredible juxtaposition of, um, I think, beauty and brutality in terms of uh, melody, but also just this sort of harsh, um, aggressive guitar parts. And um, uh, at the same time, you know, the, the vocals, of course, are, are at times just shrieking. And then, you know, you have the, the sort of pure, clean voice of Kim Deal come through on Gigantic. Um, and, uh, and of course, the, the imagery of, of these songs, you know, as well, is, is just is kind of horrific at times. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and weird, like truly deeply fucked up um yeah yeah. and like um in a uh it's sort of grotesque i think in like a pretty traditional sense you know um sort of like uh like um like sort of twisted hp lovecrafty kind of shit um and uh but i think you know at the same time you have these really just tightly wound um awesome like uh, bouncy pop rock songs that are um, sort of you know that into which those those lyrics are sort of embedded, um, and it, it really did you know I think so many people cite this as as their inspiration whether it's um, you know Kurt Cobain uh, and you know when when he was making Nevermind or um, uh, P J Harvey I mean a million people sort of claim that this is their their the standout thing that they were listening to and that people really hadn't heard anything like it before. Um, so, I mean, I guess, uh, I, you know, to, I should probably turn it over to people who are sentient, um, and, and ask the question, you know, had you heard anything like this before? 
No, it blew my doors off. And the the great thing about the Pixies, and it was truly, a benef- you know, I was the beneficiary of proximity and geography. But, um, you know, I actually had uh, Come on Pilgrim, their EP, on a uh, bootlegged uh, cassette tape before I think it came out. Um, it was, you know, someone's brother's brother, you know, was in the studio with them and, and got had a recording. It was actually called The Purple Tape. Uh, when it was being passed around originally, I think. And um, it was, you know, I just happened to go to the same college where uh, they had dropped out and, um, you know, by virtue of that, was able to see them an awful lot in the uh, uh, form, in the first few years when they were really getting their act together. But they, they sort of came on um, fully formed. I mean, this wasn't a band that, that kind of, I don't feel like they grew. I feel like they um, they sort of peaked when they started, you know, that that one EP and two first albums um, were phenomenal and it was a band that knew what it was supposed to sound like that you know was really confident in their and what they did and um, really sounded like nothing else I'd ever heard before and I was as taken with it then as I've been ta- ever been taken with any um, music I've ever heard it was it dominated everything that I listened to um, i was a massive proselytizer. I turned a ton of people onto it. Um, again, like I said, it was, you know, I was rooting for the hometown team. So, um, you know, there was that part of it too, where I had the, I was the beneficiary of being one of their, probably one of their first thousand fans. Um, so it was, I really felt close to them and I felt a, that kind of ownership that you can only feel if you, if you really get in on the ground floor with a band. And, uh, um, like I said, lucky to see them a lot live early and they were they were phenomenal so that's me just dribbling over uh surfer rosa one of my favorite albums ever yeah one of mine too it's it's the one album and i'll be brief here but it's it's an album that i often cite as when i heard it and i think i was in uh sixth grade or fifth grade um you know i just thought to myself this is this is what i like whatever this is i'm not quite sure what it is but this is this is the sound and the music that i, I like you know and, and uh, it's a great album Start to so, yeah. fucked up songs about incest were the, uh, <laughs> this, this was the 10-year-old Jeremy um, <laughs> saying, you know, I like this stuff, yeah. Um, no, but I mean, they... I like things I can Yeah, relate. exactly. Yeah, well, you know, and also, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, in lieu of CCD, I think. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it was, it was, edu- it was funny. Um, the songs were, were short. They were, like, staccato, jagged. There wasn't... You know, they were abrasive. They were really abrasive. And I just remember it taking, like, one listen to really fall in love with it. Yeah, totally. All right, I mean, I, I think, you know, that that pretty much rounds out the list. I think we did a pretty good yeah. job here today. Um, I'm not sure we can necessarily settle this, uh, but I have to say, and probably just because there's so much time um, between me and 1968, uh, that's, that's me backhandedly calling you old, Wyndham. Um, mm-hmm. I would probably give uh, I would probably give your year the uh, the the you know the, nod, the win yeah. But I would also say between the three of us, I would say probably Surfer Rosa has the most listens of any of these albums that, ever. Yeah, that's probably. Yeah, I think I think Wins is the most classic, and uh, probably yours is the most beloved, Christian. Yeah, and uh, and that said, as the as the police come to take you away. Um, we'll say good night. Hey, fuck the and, police, uh, man. <laughs> yeah, keep listening. And um, thanks so much for joining us on the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing, and from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.